Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I am Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Dr. Michael J. Brias. He's a PhD and a clinical psychologist and both a diplomat of the American Board of Sleep Medicine and a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. He is one of only 168 psychologists in the world to have passed the Sleep Medical Specialty Board without going to medical school. He was recently named the uh, top sleep specialist in California by Reader's Digest and one of the 10 most influential people in sleep. Uh, so we obviously are going to talk a little bit about sleep, but we actually talk about so much more than that. Uh, his latest book, Energize, Go from Dragging Ass to Kicking It in 30 Days, with his co-founder of SoulCycle, Stacey Griffith, is something that we talk about in this uh, in this episode. And so let me tell you a little bit about what we talk about, because I could go on and on and on about Dr. Prius's resume. He's appeared on Oprah and Anderson Cooper and CNN and, 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 I mean, he really has uh, run the gamut from Tony Robbins to YPO and so much more. And so uh, he is a very well-versed specialist in the areas of sleep, of energy, of optimizing our days and our habits and our routines in order for us to get the most out of our energy, to get the most out of our bodies. So in this episode, we talk quite a bit about different body types and we revisit the the three different body types and how we can begin to essentially adapt a, a more efficient and effective habit or schedule or routine during the day to fit our bodies, to maximize the energy that we're getting during the day and to find a more uh, aligned sleeping habit and sleeping structure. One of the biggest things that I've noticed with within myself is that I've kind of always struggled with sleep a little bit. I've been like a light sleeper here and there. And, you know, with the birth of my son, my sleep pattern was just completely destroyed <laughs> and it's starting to find its its groove now. But it's interesting to hear some of the advice uh, because Dr. Brias, uh, thankfully, is very practical, very tactical. And this episode is just rich with uh, things that you can actually implement in your life to level up your energies, to stabilize uh, your energy throughout the day, and to actually get better, higher quality, higher caliber sleep. So there's much more that we dive into, but that's that's sort of the meat and potatoes of it. And I really enjoy this conversation because he is just a wealth of information and knowledge and actions. So without any further delay. Please welcome Dr. Michael Brias. It's awesome to be on Man Talk. I love it. Right? <laughs> it's so it's so funny. I remember when I started it years ago, got so much people loved or hated the name, you right. know? And I feel like that's always a good sign of a little bit of controversy around it. I belong to a men's group called Metal in here in Los Angeles. And it's very interesting people's reaction that you belong to a men's group or you're only having men's you know, talk. We actually create a very safe space for guys to ask all kinds of questions, questions that they might not have been able to ask otherwise. So I love the idea of man talk. I think it's awesome. Awesome. Good to hear. I love that. Well, let's uh, let's start off as we always do on the show, which is with a defining moment. So tell us a, a story about a defining moment in your life. Sure. So I had just completed my 
my residency. So I have a PhD in clinical psychology and I did a residency half time in sleep and half time in neuropsychological testing. So about six months I was doing the sleep rotation and for six months I did neuropsych testing. And um, I had gotten my interview for my first job and I was very excited about it. My girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, I was telling her if they just offer $30,000 I can get health insurance. Like you remember when you were at that stage of your life where you're like, yes, dude, if I can just get to that point, being able to afford health insurance, I've made it. I've become an adult, right? <laughs> so I go into the interview and, and I, you know, I do my interview and I crush it. Like I have an awesome interview, one of my best interviews ever. And he offers me $60,000 a year, full benefits, two weeks paid vacation, two weeks medical leave where I can go to conferences and things like that. He says, but Michael, one thing I need to let you know is that you need to take and pass the sleep medicine boards. So I calmly raised my hand and I said, Dr. D. Marini, who was my boss, um, I said, that's a medical board and I have a PhD. I, I don't think I can take those. And he said, actually, there's one year left. There's an opening for non-MDs to take the medical board. So we want you to take and pass the medical boards. We're gonna give you a one-year contract and if you fail, you're fired, hmm. okay? So I go home and you know what's the first thing that I say to my wife? 60 grand, where is the money? <laughs> this is awesome. There's no way I was gonna pass the medical boards without going to medical school. I mean, honestly, like who the hell does something like that? So I'm excited, ecstatic, like this is a defining moment. I'm not making 30, I'm making 60. I got health insurance. It's all really cool. About a week goes by and my wife turns to me and she said, are you going to do it? It's like, what are you talking about? She said, are you going to try to take the medical boards without going to medical school? I'm like, who does that? She was like, I think you could do it. That was pretty much all it took and her challenging me to do it. And so every night I went to the Emory Law Library where I had rented a space I had 14 textbooks and I taught myself neurochemistry, neuroanatomy, pediatrics, general medicine, to the point of being able to take and pass the exam. So I did sit, I'm one of 168 people in the world who have taken and passed the medical specialty boards in sleep without going to medical school. So that was kind of a defining moment there was getting the offer and then actually taking and passing the test. Damn, that's that's awesome, man. I love, I love that story. That's really cool. I mean, it, I think it shows, you know, a little bit around how when we have a goal and aim, not even a goal so much, but like an aim and a direction that we truly yep. believe in, you know, what, what we are capable of, especially when we sort of put ourselves into it. Okay, I have, I'm going to get straight in because I have so many questions and there's so many things that I want to dive Throw into. Throw them at with. me, brother. I'm ready. Okay. So I want to start on the topic of exhaustion. Yep. And I want to, I want to start there specifically because think that over the last couple of years, specifically the last, you know, two years, year and a half, a lot of people have felt really depleted and exhausted, whether it's because of the, you know, media cycle or pandemic or, you know, the politicization, just like everything that has added stress and duress on top of our daily lives. So maybe we'll just begin with how do you define or view exhaustion and and maybe some of the causality of that I think would be helpful. Well, you know, and I think this is an important thing to kind of think through. And this is really the the origin story of the book. So my co-author is Stacey Griffiths. She is a founding trainer at SoulCycle, which is that indoor bicycle place, you know, where you do the indoor thing. She's amazing. But she and I have been friends for a long time. And she called me up one day and she said, Michael, 
my clients are exhausted. I'm like, what are you talking about? You work them out. I'm like, they're supposed to be exhausted. She's like, no, after the workout, after they've had recovery, they're telling me that they're exhausted. And I, you know, my first question is, well, how are they sleeping? And then I turned to her and I said, you know, my patients are telling me something similar. They're getting good sleep, but they're not feeling energetic. They're not feeling motivated during the day. They use that word exhaustion all the time, even if they're getting six, seven, eight hours of sleep. And so we, we thought about it and we said, well, there's got to be something to this. There's got to be some way that we can combine sleep and exercise in a unique way to give people more energy. And so that is really the spawn, if you will, of the book, Energize, was really brought on about based on exhaustion. So the next question is, all right, Michael, what is exhaustion, right? So there's a lot of ways to define exhaustion, just like, unfortunately, there's a lot of ways to define energy. And so we've got some unique definitions of energy, but exhaustion is oftentimes a perception, right? So how do I perceive my current energy level? And so one of the things that we did was we actually had people do ratings of perceived exertion or what's called an RPE scale. This was developed by Gunnar Borg way back when. And it's something that we use in exercise physiology all the time. So when somebody's on a bench press, you know, rating one to 10, how much exertion are you giving type of thing? And so we actually turned to people and we said, let's try to figure out how exhausted are you really? Because let's be honest. People don't start to notice that they're out of energy until they're out of energy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, very rarely does anybody turn to me and say, Michael, I've got so much damn energy today, I don't know what to do with myself, right? I've never heard that, to be honest with you. But I have heard a lot of people tell me I'm so damn exhausted, I don't know what to do with myself, right? So that identification of exhaustion seems to come almost at after the fact or when you've kind of hit that fact. In my universe, that has to do with sleep deprivation almost exclusively, right? So if you're not getting either the quantity or the quality of the sleep that you're looking for, this leads you to a state of fatigue, sleepiness, hence exhaustion. I would argue that exhaustion is a fatigue component, mental fatigue component, a physical fatigue component, and a lack of sleep component. I think if you add those three, I think that kind of equals exhaustion for sure. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that distinction because I think that kind of breaks it down to the different categories that can contribute to exhaustion. I'm sure that we'll get to this, you know, maybe a little bit more in detail as we go into the podcast, but I feel like there are different types of people when it comes to energy levels. You know, there are oh, yeah. the people that that seem to like historically just need five hours of sleep or can do, I can't remember what it's, what it's called. I'm sure you remember that you'll, maybe you'll know the name, but there's a certain type of sleeping pattern where you can yep. do like They're four hours at sleepers. night. Oh yeah. You're, oh, you're talking about sleep hacking, which is polyphasic sleep. Thank you. Polyphasic sleep. Yeah. I mean, I've read, I read a lot about, it. I was interested in it at one point and I, I even tried it for like a week, which did not go it's well. It's terrible. <laughs> it's a bad idea on every yeah. level. So let me let me define it for your, your tribe. So polyphasic sleep is where you have a small amount of sleep during the nighttime hours, and then you take very certain naps for a particular time at a particular time. So your naps are usually 25 minutes at very particular times throughout the day. And there's a, there's a guy on the internet called the Uberman who came up with the, with this schedule a long time ago. And this is, this has been well known. This has been done historically throughout time. I think Leonardo da Vinci might have done something along these lines, maybe Einstein, but here's the bottom. Yeah. Ben Franklin. Here's the bottom line. It's a really stupid idea and you really shouldn't do it. And I'm going to tell you why. 
almost everybody. So I have, I have celebrity clients. I have athlete clients. I have CEOs that come to me from all over the world. I have a very small exclusive practice and people are like, Michael, I want to get nine hours in four hours. You can't do that. I can teach you how to get eight and six, by the way. That's actually a possibility, but you can't get nine in four. Just sleep doesn't really work that way. Now, the people that have tried it, here's what's happened. By the second or third week, if you have any proclivity for depression, it pops. And it's usually a major depressive episode. And then you have two problems on your hand. You've got a sleep problem and you have a depression problem. The other thing is it's really freaking lonely. You go to bed around midnight, you wake up around 3.30 in the morning. Everybody that you care about in this universe is probably asleep. There's only so much you know, YouTube videos you can watch before you just get to this point where you're like, this is boring, right? I had one patient who actually did it and he did it for about three years and he loved it. He learned several new skill sets. He learned how to play the drums, which was not something that his wife was interested in him learning at three o'clock in the morning. I'm just letting you know. He also read a lot. He did a lot of these different things. So I do believe that there is a genetic component to people who can be successful at polyphasic sleeping. And I don't think many people have said component. It's just not a good idea. You know, for me, the thing that I always tell people is sleep is healing. So why would you want to do less of it? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, if, if you turn to your doctor and you say, hey, my arm is broken, but by the way, I only want to heal for about half of the time, and then I'm going to kind of go on about my way, you would never say that. Like in a million years, you would never say that. So why do we do that with our sleep? I think, you know, we've got to level up that priority of sleep. A lot of people don't realize that they kind of use sleep as the shock absorber of their life, right? So if I have a super stressful day, I don't sleep a lot because I'm... A and then when I have a less stressful day, I sleep a little bit more to catch up. And then when I have a super stressful day, you know, and you kind of do one of these throughout your week, your month, and your year, I got news for you. Consistency. That mm. is the big factor. And really knowing and understanding your body, understanding things like your body type, your chronotype, and being able to use those tools in a way, shape, and form that gives you an advantage to personalize your schedule. Yeah. Awesome. I, <clears throat> I appreciate you breaking that down because I I did try it for a little period of time. I think I did like 1 a.m. until 4.30 or something like that. And then I did naps during the day. And I, I'm not, a, by nature, I'm not a napper. Like I just can't, I struggle to nap during the day, period. And so that really screwed screwed me up. So I think I, I think I lasted like a week and a half. And then I was like, this is, this is the yields on this are not it's beneficial. Terrible, <laughs> it's, it's really, terrible, dude. It's terrible. It was really gnarly. The only um, time I've ever seen people really do it successfully is if they're single right? So there's no other partner than, and they don't have kids because kids throw everything off because kids don't care that you're on a polyphasic sleep schedule. They want to play or they want to go to bed or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's nuts. So tell me about the different body types and, and maybe break down like who are certain body types more susceptible to exhaustion and why does it seem like there are certain people that are just little energizer bunnies whose batteries just never seem to go out? Yeah, 100%. So the answer to your question is yes. And we've kind of unlocked that a little bit by learning about the different body types and how people like to expend their energy and then also understanding it from a chronotypical standpoint. So just to double tap really quickly to remind people of what the body types are, you may have to think back to high school biology for this one, but we used to call them endomorphs, mesomorphs, and ectomorphs, if people remember that vernacular. So let me just go, go a little bit defining Please. those. So an endomorph is somebody who's a little bit thicker, 
They have a tendency to carry weight around the middle, maybe weight across their hips, kind of look more like a rectangle or a pear-shaped body style. A mesomorph is somebody whose shoulders are a little bit broader than their hips, more of a V-shaped body style. They have a tendency to hang their muscle across the top of the skeletal frame, not so much towards the bottom. And then the ectomorphs are the long and lean people. These are just skinny. Those are the people that you're talking about with the never-ending energy who seem to be able to do any exercise and be athletically gifted in just about everything, right? So we, we have a tendency to see that the endomorphs get exhausted much faster, have much more fatigue, which makes sense because they've got, they're carrying more weight on them. And it's not muscular weight, nine times out of 10, it's a combination ratio of muscle to fat. And unfortunately, in many cases, it's a little bit more fat than a lot of people would like to have. When I started working with Stacey Griffith, the, my co-author of the book, she helped me identify actual exercises for the different body types that people have a greater success rate on, right? So hmm. if you're, let's say that you're a night owl, what I would call a wolf, and you're an, an endomorph, right? Somebody with a slow metabolism. If I tell you to go run a mile, you're going to tell me to go kiss, you're going to tell me to kiss your butt, right? Because you don't run miles because that's not your body type, right? But if you were an ectomorph, right, a long and lean person, you'd be like, how many miles do you want me to run, <laughs> right? Because again, our body type can dictate what our, our success rate would be in an exercise, which then leads to our motivation and our energy, right? The biggest thing I can't stand is the mismatch that happens for so many people when they go to the gym, right? Oh, I'm going to pump iron. Well, maybe your body type isn't one that does that really well. Oh, I'm going to get on the treadmill and run my ass off. No, again, Maybe that's not the body type that you need. So what we did in the book was we, we created a program. And I want to be very clear. It's not an exercise program. It's a movement program. So this isn't going to give you big muscles. And this isn't going to, you're not going to work out doing this. But this is five times during the day where I want you to get off your ass and move. Okay. And that's why the book is called to go from dragging ass to kicking it in 30 days. So we have a movement schedule that Stacy taught me about, which really worked out quite well in terms of keeping people from getting to that exhausted state, which you were just actually asking me to identify, right? So mesomorphs have a tendency to actually be able to do most different types of exercises. And the ectomorphs, they have a tendency to do better actually in cardio. If you ask a long and lean ectomorph to get down and do a bunch of bench presses, they're not gonna do as well because their body type isn't really aligned to do something like that. The, the program that we have is called the five and five. And so what we do is we have you measure your energy five different times with that scale that I was talking about, right? The ratings of perceived exertion scale. So once you're doing that five times a day, so once after you wake up, once before lunch, once after lunch, once before dinner, and then once before bed, we have you set alarms on your phone. I know it sounds like it's a little bit oppressive, like, oh my God, Michael, five times a day. It literally takes you 20 seconds. Your phone goes off and you just type in a number. Phone goes off and you type in a number. Then what we have you do is we use those five times and then we teach you how to move. So mm. there's five different types or categories of movement. The first one is a stretch, right? And so it makes kind of sense, right? You've been lying in bed for six, seven, eight hours. You kind of need to stretch yourself. Give one of these, kind of one of these, do it around, get yourself stretched out, ready for your day. The second one is a shake, right? And so literally shake your hands, shake your arms. You ever notice what your dog does when it wakes up after a nap? It goes, right? It does that whole crazy shaky thing where the whole body goes crazy. That's what I'm talking about, right? 
If it's good enough for your dog, it's good enough for you. But what it does is it gives you a break is it pulls you away from whatever it was that you were intensely focusing on. And it lets you get into your body for just a few minutes. Again, five minutes, you don't break a sweat. The next one is called a bounce. And the bounce is literally what it says. You jump up and down, you get on a trampoline, like one of those little mini tramps. You do some jumping jacks, you skip down the lane, if you will. Whatever it is to get you, once again, a break from what you are doing and get your body moving again. This is only for five minutes once again, but it's very, very helpful. The fourth one is a build. So you're going to use a major muscle group. Maybe you're going to do some push-ups, maybe some sit-ups, maybe even some deep knee bends or some squats. Again, not to the point of sweating, just to the point of moving. Then the final one is a balance. So we have you do like a tree pose or a downward dog or something like that before bed to help settle you down, settle your movement down, but allow you to kind of coast on into sleep. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I mean, I think I'm fortunate enough that like physical movement has always been something that I've really loved. You know, I think just growing up in, in Canada, you just have to move in order to stay warm. <laughs> so <laughs> movement 100%. was just a very, yeah, very active part of my life. Yeah, no, I think that that breakdown, I think that breakdown is good. So that that kind of brings me into, uh, well, maybe I just want to pause there and ask one more question. So sure. you've got the endomorphs, ectomorphs, and the mesomorphs. That's correct. If you have a natural, like if you, you know, if you're, if you're one of them, are you able to use working out, exercise, et cetera, to sort of shift your body type or is your body type just set? Unfortunately, your body type is set. There okay. are some, and, and a lot of it has to do with your metabolism, right? So as we were talking about before, the long and leans have a quick metabolism, the mesomorphs have a medium and the endomorphs have a bit slower metabolism. There is some data that's been coming out looking at things like use of IV and NAD. So nicotinamide, if you're familiar with that, NAD plus, there's a lot of data now coming out about that, helping change your set point of your metabolism, helping speed up your metabolism. Of course, Cardio, vascular exercise can also change your metabolism, but it's going to be tough to go from an endomorph to an ectomorph, if you will. You can probably make one jump, but you're going to have to really be conscious about it, watching your diet, watching your exercise, things of that nature. And when we talk about diet, at least in the book, we really are referencing more so intermittent fasting than actually what you eat, but the timing of when you eat it and how long you fast has turned out to be significantly important. But yeah, you can start to kind of cheat your way over to another body type, but it takes a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I was asking that because earlier on in life, I was definitely thicker, you know, like I went through a phase in my early twenties where buddy. I was like, I mean, I had a ton of muscle mass. I was like 240 pounds. I'm like six foot wow. two, but I was like 240 pounds. I was working out, I was doing construction, but I was also eating like an inordinate amount of food. <laughs> and, but I right. found that in the last couple of years, like I, I turned 38 this year, I found in the last couple of years, I've actually found probably what I would consider to be the most optimal for my body in terms of how much food I consume, right. my, my sleeping patterns, my working out. I would like to, you know, lift heavier weights, which I'm going to be doing here soon. But, mm -hmm. but it's been interesting that my energy levels have sort of stabilized as yep. I've optimized for my natural body type, which has been yeah. really fascinating. Cause like when I had more Dude, weight on, I was book. 
That's the book. Okay. <laughs> You're like, that's what Energize is about, man. Yeah. Living it. It's perfect. That's so what you've discovered on your own throughout some of your, and I mean, let's be honest, it probably took you a while to figure all these things out about totally. yourself and about your body type. So what we're doing in this is exactly what you did, but what we're doing is helping people get there a lot faster by personalizing their workout schedule, by personalizing their feeding schedule, and by personalizing their sleep. So we personalize your sleep based on your chronotype. We personalize your exercise or movement based on your body type, and we use both to help you actually help you with intermittent fasting. So you you figured it out. I just kind of put it into a book form. So thanks, bro. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, trial trial and error over a decade. <laughs> I feel yeah, like I, I did it in three months in a book. You did it in a decade. That's, so there, there we go, go. There we go. Well, I'm curious, you know, in terms of the three different body types, you sort of alluded to maybe different forms of movement and and working out. What does that look like based on your body type? Is there certain things that people should stick to? There are. So when you start to look at the ectomorphs, the leaner people, they're going to just do better with cardio in general. They're also going to do better with yoga in general because they have the tendency to be a bit more flexible because they just don't have as much girth to try to move around. So we have a tendency to move those people into that because we get them successful in it. Then we start to challenge them with more anaerobic exercise. So we use aerobic more so on the ectomorphs and anaerobic more so on the endomorphs. Mesos, can we can kind of pick and choose in between depending upon what their motivation is or, or something new that they want to try or something that was an old standby. But from activity standpoint, that's kind of how we break it down for people. And then we just give them lists or choices of different ex exercises or activities that they may want to do. The five different categories are different because those aren't exercises. Those are just movement strategies. They, they can use throughout the day. One of the really interesting pieces that we were able to unlock with body types had actually more to do with intermittent fasting than anything else. And that was actually one of the biggest surprises of the research that we, we put together. Hmm. Yeah, I was, I was going to, that was going to be my next question was actually about hmm. intermittent fasting. So can you tell me a little bit more? Cause I'm fasting, yeah. like I do like 16, eight, you know, where I'll, I'll only eat for an eight hour window and then yeah. 16 hours of not. And so just speak a little bit to maybe how intermittent fasting first impacts the, the body types, and then let's look at sleep potentially. Absolutely. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to, to tell people out there is if you're interested in trying to figure out what your body type is just right away, there's actually an easy physical marker to do it. Take your thumb and your, and your forefinger and wrap it around your wrist. If you, if they touch, you're a mesomorph. If they don't touch, you're an endomorph. And if they almost overlap, you're an ectomorph. It's a really easy way to look at wrist size to be able to give you a marker to figure that out. So you, I, I can see you're doing it right there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so if they touch, right. So they touch. So you're a mesomorph, right? Yeah. If they, if they overlap, you'd have been the thinner ectomorph. And if they don't touch, then you would have been the thicker endomorph just as a, huh. as a guideline. But talking about body types and intermittent fasting, let's let's drill down or double tap on that a little bit as well. So first of all, let's talk about what is intermittent fasting, because you mentioned one of the schedules, but there might be some people out there who actually don't know what this whole idea is. So intermittent fasting is time-restricted feeding is the best way I can I can break it down for people. So there's a certain time during the day that you fast, and there's a certain time of day that you eat. Now, the question becomes, why on earth would I do this? And what could be good about this for me? Because I was always taught growing up, you need to have three meals a day and you know dinner is going to be the biggest meal and 
you know, all, 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 all these different things. There's been a discovery of something called autophagy. So autophagy is a very unique process that occurs when the body is in a fasting state. So when you're fasting for a period of time, usually longer than 10 to 11 hours, your body will use up the carbohydrates that it's got, and then it turns to fat, and it literally burns your fat. That is the purest and most efficient energy that your body has in it, is being able to use those fat stores. So we like it when that happens, because quite frankly, most people have got too much fat on them, right? We're living in the United States where 75% of people are overweight and 50% of them are obese. So we are definitely in a place where intermittent fasting can be very, very helpful for people. Now, I'm going to tell you about the experiment that I ran when I first did intermittent fasting, okay, which was crazy, and I don't recommend that people do it, but I wanted to try it out. So somebody told me, you can eat whatever you want, you can only eat it during this one period of time. And so I was like, no problem. So I did an 8-16 schedule, just like what you did, right? So I fasted for 16 hours, and I would eat for eight. And I ate a pint of ice cream every single day for 30 days, okay? I didn't gain a pound, which was shocking to me. The dairy almost killed me. I'm just letting you know. I've now substituted for coconut ice cream and there's right. other <laughs> ones that almond milk ice cream that are much better for me type of thing. But it was fascinating to me that just by restricting when I ate, I wasn't gaining any weight all of a sudden. So that in and of itself was kind of an interesting thing. And by the way, you can be a vegetarian, a vegan, a paleo, a keto. It doesn't matter what your diet is, Mediterranean, whatever it is. But what we're talking about is only eating during a certain period of time and only fasting during a certain period. So that's number one. Number two, what, what are we talking about? Unlocking this big secret has to do with your body type. So first of all, when you look at a body type, a long and lean person, shouldn't be fasting for a long period of time because guess what? They're already lean. They probably don't need to lose a whole lot of weight. So if you're an ectomorph, you would go on starting a 12 and 12 schedule, 12 hours of feeding, 12 hours of fasting. Then if you're a mesomorph, you would change that schedule and you would have 14 hours of fasting and 10 hours of feeding. And if you were an endomorph where you were trying to lose weight, you would start out with an 816 schedule, right? 16 hours of fasting, eight hours of feeding. Nobody gives anybody a start point, which is so freaking frustrating out there because everybody's like, I don't know what to do. Should I only eat for four hours and fast for 20? No, you shouldn't, right? So we've got to give people a starting point. And the most logical starting point that I could find was based on your body type, because we know that tells us a lot about metabolism. The second part that's really interesting is your chronotype. So remember, chronotype is, if, are you an early bird? Are you a night owl? Are you somebody in between or an insomniac? This teaches you when to fast. So now that we know how long to fast based on our body type, we now know when. So I'm a night owl, also known as a wolf. And so I started intermittent fasting where I can't eat breakfast, dude. Like, I just can't eat it. Don't get me wrong. I love breakfast food. Like, I like eggs, and bacon, and all that kind of good stuff. But I can't eat it at six o'clock in the morning. Like I'll puke. So we learned I had to change my fasting timing based on my chronotype. Since I'm a night owl or what I call a wolf, I actually don't start eating until about one o'clock in the afternoon. Now people might be saying, oh my God, Michael, you're crazy. You don't eat something until one. I'm not hungry. I have plenty of energy. I mean, you can see the level of energy I have now. It's 11 o'clock where I am. And I, I think I've had a quarter of a cup of coffee today. That's it. And I've been up since 5.45. 
So it's like, that's kind of what you can do is you now know when to fast and for how long to fast and feed based on your body type and based on your chronotype. And that's one of the things that we discuss in the book, but it's different for each one of the chronotypes and each one of the body types. So you got to kind of get in there and figure it out. Very cool. Yeah, I, uh, I still do it. Like today, I didn't eat until 1130. Same thing. I was up at, you know, six o'clock in the morning, didn't eat until 1130. And I love it. I mean, yeah, so me is there, maybe I'm not too sure if I, maybe I missed it in there, but is or does intermittent fasting impact our sleeping patterns? That's an interesting question. So the answer is yes, it actually gives us more energy. You have to be a little bit careful because sometimes that autophagy is giving you so much energy, it can prevent you from being able to fall asleep, especially with my night owls. It's interesting that you, that you picked up on that. So sometimes if you fast so much later into the day because you're a night owl like me, like let's say I didn't eat until two or three o'clock in the afternoon, then guess what? Having that food could actually prevent me from being able to fall asleep right? Because my stomach's too full or my digestive process is going on or things like that. So there's definitely a balance to be played. And we do talk about that in the book. Unfortunately, it's specific based on your chronotype and your body type. So there's a whole bunch of different machinations that you got. Yeah, I love that because I, I've noticed for myself that if I don't eat until noon and then I have a heavy, like if I have like a steak, especially yeah. if I have a steak later on, like right before the end of the window at like mm. 7.30, yep. man, I have a tough time falling asleep. I'm just yep. like, awake. <laughs> yes, absolutely. My body's well, because, like, no. <laughs> well, you just put this massive load of protein on there and it's, it's protein that takes a little bit more to digest than normal protein does. So what I tell people all the time is instead of having that steak at dinner, see if you can have it at lunch, see if you can move that larger protein dose a little bit earlier in the day or change up your protein, omega-3s, so salmon, fish, anything that's got omegas in it as your main protein source in the evenings, that's actually better for sleep in general and it's easier to digest. So, you know, doing it out a little bit or maybe making your last meal of the day vegetarian hmm. can actually also be helpful because it's so much lighter on your stomach and you you burn through those carbs much faster than like potatoes. <laughs> yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Okay. Well, let's, let's shift into sleep. Cause I, this is definitely something that I wanted to get into as well. Yeah. And I feel like this is a good, a good transition point. So maybe if you can just recap, what are the, the sleep chronotypes? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, for folks, if you want to learn what your chronotype is, you can go to chronoquiz.com. It takes you about two minutes. If you want to learn up what your body type and your chronotype is, you can go to myenergyquiz.com or you can go to energizemyself.com. All of those will be in the show notes for folks if they want them. But we were talking about sleep and we're talking about chronotype. So used to be, well, let me back up. You might not have heard of the term chronotype, but most people have heard of the concept, which is somebody being called an early bird or somebody be called a night owl. That turns out to not be a choice. A lot of people think, oh, I'm just going to wake up at 5 a.m. and be part of the 5 a.m. club. Good freaking luck, okay? Turns out this is genetic. As specifically, if you go to the PER3 area of your genome, we can see a SNP or a single nucleotide polymorphism where there's a change of the initial building blocks, and that's what causes our bodies to sleep later or to wake up earlier. So what's interesting is, and by the way, this was discovered in the 70s. This isn't something that I did. They came up with this idea of a morningness, eveningness questionnaire, which was really kind of interesting. And they started to notice people, certain people would heal better in the morning. Certain people would heal 
better in the afternoons or evenings. This was started to be discovered in the 1800s in hospital beds. They started to notice like so-and-so is doing better at this time of day, but does terrible at that time of day. And they started to kind of understand more about that. My contribution to the literature was I found a fourth chronotype. So we know that there are early birds, what we called hummingbirds, which are people in the middle and night owls. My addition was adding insomnia to this whole category system. Um, and to be fair, I'm not a bird, I'm a mammal. So I changed the names. So I picked mammal names that really actually represent the chronotypes. So early bird turns into a lion. Who doesn't want to be a lion, right? Kind of funny side story. When we were making up these categories in the marketing meeting for the book and we're going around the table, I was like, I think we should do animals and everybody's. And I said, I want them to have the same chronotype as, as they represent. We learned very quickly, nobody wants to be a porcupine. You know yeah. what I'm saying, <laughs> right? Nobody wants yeah. to be a platypus, you know, if you know what I'm saying. So we had to find yeah. cool animals that also represented the chronotypes in a cool way. So early birds become lions because, hey, who doesn't want to be a lion, right? And these are my COOs at the company, my early risers. They get up at 530 without an alarm. They're chipper. It's disgusting. I can't stand it, okay? There's nothing I hate more than mornings other than morning people because they just don't stop. They're just go, go, go all the time. I'm a night owl, as you probably can already tell. I don't have true animosity for the morning people. I kind of envy them if you want to know the truth of the matter, because I'm just not a morning person no matter what. In the middle are bears, and it used to be called hummingbirds. They make up, believe it or not, 5-0, of the population. This is the one you want to be. If you're going to be a chronotype, you want to be a bear. Bear's the best, because most of society actually works on a bear's schedule right? The nine to five is perfect for a bear. They get up around seven o'clock in the morning. They go to bed around 10 o'clock at night. Like life is pretty good for these people, right? Then you've got the wolves. That's me. So I'm a night owl. I have been since I was a teenager and it never seemed to stop. I never go to bed before midnight if I can help it just because I'm not tired. Wolves have a tendency to be very different on the personality scale of things. So whereas lions like to make a list and go from step one to step two to step three every day, me, if I make a list, I go from step one to step 12 to step 47. It makes perfect sense in my head, but nobody knows what's going on for me. So it can be a little bit difficult. My wolves have a tendency to be my artists, my actors, my musicians. So my creative types who also do a lot of risk taking. So you have to be a little bit careful if you're a wolf because people do have a tendency to stay up super late. Now, to be clear, those three categories there's nothing new about that. I just changed the names, right? We kind of know who those people are and we have always. And just to be clear, these categories have been around since the dawn of time, right? When you were in a village way back when, if you were a hunter, you were probably a lion because you naturally woke up early and went out hunting. If you stayed in the village and you tended to the village and the villagers, you were probably a bear, right? If you were a security guard who stayed up late, you were probably a wolf. So once again, we're not talking about anything that's truly dramatic until I added this fourth category of insomniac, which I call a dolphin. Now, the reason I chose dolphin is number one, dolphins are pretty freaking cool. But number two, dolphins sleep unihemispherically. So half of their brain is asleep while the other half is awake and looking for predators. I felt like that kind of exemplified my insomnia patients who are never quite asleep. So my dolphins are people who have just like my lions, they like to get up early, but unfortunately, they don't have a good sleep drive. They usually have insomnia. They are the list makers of all list makers, and they go from one, two, three, four, five. 
They kind of have a lot of anxiety floating around in their system. And so that's usually the thing is they're very similar to lions with a touch of anxiety, a little bit of OCD, if you want to know the truth of the matter. And it kind of doesn't work well for them. That's where my third book, The Power of When, we helped you identify that and then figure out what time of day was best for you to do all sorts of things, including sleep. And, you know, when we talk about sleep, it's it's not just a one size fits all. You know, lots of people are like, everybody needs to go to bed before midnight and get eight hours. So I'm here to tell you that that's bullshit. Okay, there's almost no data to suggest any of that is true in any way, shape or form. Sleep Mm. needs to be personalized. These four categories will absolutely positively teach you when you should be sleeping. Like the power of when is the name of my third book. And it's because you learn when in your hormonal cycle that your hormones are perfectly ready to do certain things like work out, like sleep, eat, have sex, ask your boss for a raise. Like literally, I can show you the perfect time of day based on your chronotype to do just about anything. In Energize, we combine that with the intermittent fasting, we give people the sleep schedules and the movement schedules based on their chronotype. So it all fits perfectly, which helps engage them and makes them more motivated. Very cool. I appreciate the breakdown of the of different uh, chronotypes. And, you know, I think it's interesting because I definitely, I mean, I have some of the clients that like I, I was, as you were talking about the lion, you know, I have some of those clients. It's like, yeah, I'm fine with having a, a 6 a.m. session. You know, it's like 6 a.m. their time, 9 a.m. my time. And I'm like, right dude, <laughs> why? <laughs> like who wants to, who wants to have this conversation at 6 a.m.? Some people love that. Right. So I know, um, I think I like the way that you position all of this because I think that generally people have a stigma oftentimes around their sleeping patterns, oh, around yeah. their sleeping types. And it's interesting how sleep has become such a social conversation about how important Isn't it is and the, the do's and don'ts. And, and there's this very like it's almost become like a moral question, you know, of like, are you right. a good moral person, you know, forgetting it? But okay, let me let me ask you, do you do you feel like there's a set amount of sleep for humans? Or is there a set amount of sleep based off of your chronotype? Or or is there just no set amount of sleep, period? So I would say that choice B is really where I would I would land on that. So we do know that for as an example, the dolphin and the wolf chronotype. They only, generally speaking, have four sleep cycles, whereas the bear and the lion chronotype, generally speaking, have five sleep cycles. So that, that, um, and a sleep cycle is roughly 90, that's nine zero minutes, right? So if you're a wolf or a dolphin, sleeping six hours is perfectly acceptable. Whereas if you're a lion or a bear, you probably want to get closer to seven, seven and a half. Now, to be fair, consistency is the key. So I'm going to let you, I'm going to clue you in on a little secret here that happened to me, which has been very, very interesting. So I go to bed at midnight every single night. That's just kind of what I do. It's what works for me. And I started just, I decided this was like about three years ago. I was like, I'm never going to use an alarm again. I'm just going to allow myself to wake up and see what happened. Like see how much sleep does my body really need? So it started out, I would wake up at 7.30. After about two months, it was 7.15. Another two months, it was seven o'clock. All of a sudden, I worked my way down to six hours and 15 minutes. Now, to be clear, this wasn't on purpose. I was going to bed at midnight and I was just allowing my body to naturally wake up. But the consistency of my sleep shrank my overall sleep need. So you ask the question, how much sleep does a person need? It depends upon, number one, if they're sleeping within their chronotypical swim lane, if you will, right? So 
Are you in that schedule? And number two, how consistent are you? So I sleep in the chronotypical schedule. I'm super consistent. I don't need more than six hours of sleep almost every single day. You realize that gives me almost two hours back into my day to do whatever I want, whether it's fun stuff for me, hanging out with my kids or family or, you know, work. So if people are looking for a way to get more time into their lives, learn your chronotype and be consistent with your sleep. You'll be shocked at how much more time you have and how much better you feel. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because again, through, I mean, mostly through trial and error, I've also stopped using an alarm and yeah. somewhat because of my son, <laughs> excuse me, who's like, he's nine months old and he's just, he gets Congratulations. up. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, he gets up between like six and seven every single day. And so I've just found my, my body has sort of like settled into this nice routine where I get somewhere between like seven hours and 10 minutes to seven twenty, which I feel like the parents listening to this episode are gonna be like, you get seven hours of sleep <laughs> most right. nights, most nights, not all the nights, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, like I, I found the same thing is that the more that I've been consistent about when I actually go to bed. Right. the more that my sleeping pattern is sort of like dialed into a nice rhythm. Well, and you picked up on something that I, I want to I wanna emphasize, which is you have control of when you go to bed. Mm -hmm. You kind of don't have control of anything else. Like your body's just going to kind of wake you up or your child is going to wake you up or something is going to wake you up at a particular time in the morning. We call that our socially determined wake-up time. But our bedtime is definitely something that we can influence and again, the more consistent you are with it, the better off you are. A lot of people, they don't even think about sleep until it's like 20 minutes before they're going to bed because they're like, oh, I'm tired. I guess I'll go to bed now. That's really not the strategy here, okay? It would be, it would be just like if you decided to say, you know what? I've got a race on Friday. I'm a track star. I've got a race on Friday. You know, I've decided I'm going to change my, cha my training schedule every single day before the race and see what happens, okay? Mm -hmm. It's exactly like that. And when you show up to race or you show up to sleep, the consistency of that, of the training beforehand is what's going to dictate your performance at the, at the end of it all. And that's really what we want is we want to perform well and we want to sleep well. Very cool. Well, I have, I have a few questions on this front because I feel like this is something yep. that I know my, my listeners are going to be curious about. Sure. So fire away. How, how do things like, you know, obviously there's the big caffeine debate and yep. you know how something like stress and high levels of cortisol in the body affect your sleeping patterns. So maybe if, yeah. if you can, I'd like to go through stress and cortisol, coffee, and then social media, and how these different variables all impact our system and, and what we can do to sort of regulate our system accordingly. You bet. So when we talk about stress, we have to mention cortisol, right? And so for folks who may or may not know, cortisol is the hormone, the fight or flight hormone, right? So this is the thing that happens. So when you get freaked out when something bad is about to happen, when you feel that adrenaline pumping through you, that's also cortisol. And that's the thing that'll give you that get up and go to make you really leave the building type of thing. Now, the problem is, is that it's good for small situations. It's bad if you've got cortisol consistently at high levels. This causes a significant level of fatigue to an area of your system called your adrenal glands. So the adrenals sit right on top of the kidneys and they're very important for all kinds of different functions, but one of them is your overall energy level or feelings of fatigue. So one of the things we know is if you are constantly in this fight or flight, like, oh my God, I'm putting out a fire of my business every 30 seconds. Oh my God, something's going on with my family. Oh my God, something's going on with my health. If you keep doing that, 
that high level of cortisol in and around your brain has an, a long-term effect and it really causes you to fatigue out. So lowering your stress lowers your cortisol. Okay, Michael, we get it. So how do we lower our stress and lower our cortisol? It's, you know, there's no magic secret here, okay? It's called hydration. It's called breathing. It's called exercise. Like these are like, there's nothing hard, meditation. There's nothing hard about figuring out ways to reduce your stress. The hard part is finding what works for you. So one of the things that we oftentimes are doing is trying different things. One of my favorites is just breathing right? And so one of the easiest ways to lower our cortisol is doing something called a four, seven, eight breathing methodology. So this is something that was developed by Andrew Weil. The Navy SEALs actually use it for their snipers, because if you have a sniper rifle and your heart is beating too fast, you can actually change the trajectory of the bullet. So they want your heart rate to be below 60. So doing a four, seven, eight, where you breathe in for a count of four, hold it for a count of seven, breathe out for a count of eight, that's something that people can do right before bed, something you can do in the middle of the night to help lower that cortisol, lower that stress. Because I don't think I'm ever going to prevent stress from entering into your life. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be amazing, right, if we could all do that? But what we can do is we can prevent our reaction to the stress, M more our secondary reaction than our primary reaction, right? So something stressful happens, boom, we're going to react. I get that part, but it's that second reaction right? It's the, do I want to continue thinking about that bad thought? Do I want to continue walking down that path again? If you don't, and you can use something like a four, seven, eight breathing method to just pause, just to stop your thinking for just a second and lower that heart rate, it'll really be very beneficial from a stress perspective. Other things, obviously, that you can do is move, right? I mean, because when your body is moving, right, then you're not thinking necessarily about the thing that was stressful to you before. So again, anything you can do lowering that stress is going to have a significant effect on your sleep. So Michael, how does it affect my sleep? You can't go to sleep if your brain is fully cortisolized, okay? Mm -hmm. I just made up that word, by the way, cortisolized, <laughs> right? And so what happens is in order to exit a state of unconsciousness, you need two hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, and they both have to be high. So the thing that you have to understand is you cortisol present does not promote sleep. It promotes wake. So whatever you can do to lower that stress is going to be helpful there. Now, caffeine is kind of interesting. If you compared cortisol to caffeine, it would be like comparing cocaine to weak tea in terms of how powerful they are. However, caffeine has got a big, powerful nature to it, and it affects the human body in a lot of different ways in an extended way, which is the problem that most people don't realize. Caffeine is a half-life of between six and eight hours. Now, for folks out there who don't know what a half-life is, that means that half of the material has been excreted through the system, but 50% is still on board. So caffeine has a half-life of six to eight hours. So one of my recommendations, I have three different caffeine recommendations. My first one is stop drinking caffeine by 2 p.m. This way, eight hours later, which is roughly when people want to go to bed, you've only got 50% of the caffeine still on board. If you can handle that after about two months, then you stop drinking caffeine by 12. This gives you a little bit more room. Only about 35% of caffeine is left in your system at this point. Then I want you to stop drinking it at nine. Nine gives you about 12 to 13 hours before you're going to bed and only 25% of the caffeine is left in your system at that point in time. So you can see how I'm doing a stepwise 
backing up, if you will, of caffeine, because the closer you drink caffeine to bed, the worse it's going to be for ruminative thought, because that's one of the big problems. The biggest problem that I hear from an insomnia perspective is, Dr. Bruce, how do I turn off my brain? Number one, don't drink coffee at five o'clock in the afternoon because that's not helping, okay? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, kind of obvious, right? The third area that you asked about is blue light. This is an area that's gotten a lot of attention fairly recently. And if you look at the data, it's kind of interesting. So number one, does blue light affect your sleep? It does, but in an interesting way. It turns off the melatonin faucet in your brain. So when blue light hits your eyeballs, you have a special cell in your eye called a melanopsin cell. This sends a signal to the hypothalamus that says, hey, turn off, actually the pineal gland, turn off the melatonin faucet in my brain. It also does something else, is it resets the timer to tell you when to produce melatonin. This is why first thing in the morning, you want blue light. So when you wake up and that consistency that we were talking about earlier, this is the real mechanism behind that consistency. So it turns off the melatonin faucet, sets the timer for about 16 hours later. So if you wake up every day at, let's say, six o'clock, then your melatonin is going to start roughly six hours later. But if you wake up every day at six o'clock, six o'clock, and then eight o'clock, your brain doesn't know to change that. And so 16, 14 to 16 hours later, that, and so guess what? Now you've just changed your bedtime by changing your morning time. Hmm. So something to be aware of. But blue light at night, it can definitely have an effect. Now, I'm the only sleep doctor in the universe that says it's okay to fall asleep with the television on. Yes, folks, you heard it here on Man Talks. It's okay to fall asleep with the television on. Why do I say that? To be honest with you, number one, it's very difficult to get people to stop watching television at night. But more importantly, they rarely watch it. They're more listening to it, right? Their eyes are closed. They're listening to it out of the corner of their ear. And it's just enough of a distraction so that they don't think about what's going on in their head, which is what's keeping them awake. So I don't have a problem with TV because 99% of them have TV timers built into the software. If you can't figure it out, ask your kid. I guarantee you they can figure out how to use the software in your television. And then you can watch TV, fall asleep, and have it go off. What I don't like are phones before bed or, or iPads or tablets before bed. And I'll explain why. Number one, proximity of the light. It's much closer than the television that's all the way across the room. But number two, if you're trying to get your high score on Candy Crush, you're not trying to fall asleep, if you know what I'm saying, right? Mm. So if you're scrolling and you know texting and doing all these things, it's far too interactive. Watching television is the most passive activity that there, I wouldn't even call it an activity, really. You're just kind of lying there, letting the content kind of flow over you. Whereas when you're here, it's a different story. So I oftentimes tell people, look, do a 90-minute media diet before bed, right? 90 minutes before bed, Toss the electronics. If you want to watch a little TV, fine. If you want to read on a Kindle, fine. I'd rather you read on, on a book book because number one, I'm an author and we want people to buy books. But number two, I personally just like turning the pages. Um, I don't like getting the bright light at me in the evenings. And so that's kind of my preference. Or an audio book is another great option. You can put in some pillow speakers or you can wear some headphones while you're on an elliptical or whatever it is that you want to do. But I think that's a good way to do it as well. So we hit cortisol. We hit caffeine and we hit electronics and blue light. So good. I'm glad that we I'm glad that we tackled that. I know we're we're sort of running out on time here, but I'm glad we tackled that because you know I think that those are the big ones. I've noticed for myself. I mean, I've I've done again. I've kind of done some of those things and have I can 
verify through experience on the caffeine front that sure. scaling it back slowly is such a valuable tool. Like I've, I've moved mine back. To, I think I cut myself off at like 1030 now. When you said 9 a.m., I could just immediately feel myself be like, ooh, can I stop drinking coffee by 9 a.m.? Probably. Let's, like challenge, challenge accepted. We'll see how that we'll see how there that goes. Go. But um So do it based yeah. on your bedtime. So if your bedtime is 10 o'clock, then don't drink past 10 o'clock. If your bedtime is eleven, you know, try at that 12 hour range and see how you do. Cool. I love it. I love it. And then um on the on the movement side, I, I've been doing this thing for years where I, where if I can't sleep. I found this yoga hack years ago where I'll lay on my back with my feet up the wall and it just allows the blood to move yep. through and it slows down my heart rate. And I'll just lay there for about five minutes and that yeah. that seems to really help. That Perfect. breathing technique that I think you gave was, was quite good as well. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to pause here. So obviously, tell us, just give us a one last little summary about the book, Energize. Sure. And then where people can find you. We'll have all the links in the show notes, but just in case people are wanting to go find you immediately. Absolutely. So so first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I certainly appreciate it. The book is called Energize. Go from dragging ass to kicking it in 30 days. It's available on Books A Million, Amazon, any bookstore around. It's They're all out there, so you can grab them there. If you want to figure out what your chronotype is and your body type, if you go to myenergyquiz.com, you can learn it there or energizemyself.com. Those are the great places. And if you just want to learn more about sleep, you can follow me on social. My handle is The Sleep Doctor and I'm on every social platform you can imagine. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's such a pleasure to chat with you and get to dive into some of these things. I feel like next time that you come back on after the, the book tour is done, we should definitely talk about uh, sex and relationships and you know, different bonotypes, different chronotypes because I feel like there's some juicy information in there that we oh, didn't yes. have time to get to today. So there definitely is. Yeah. If you're up to that, I'd love to have you back on. Of course, that would be my pleasure. Thanks again. Of course. And for everyone that's out there listening, don't forget to share this episode with just one person or more that you know will enjoy the conversation and the content in today's interview. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. 